big idea, but so young. It will never work. Zero experience. We'll see. Welcome to Dorm Room to Boardroom, where the journey from campus to corporate isn't just a story, it's a roadmap for the next generation of game changers. I'm your host, Maddie Rifkin, CEO and founder of Mount. Join me today for our exciting discussion as we chat with Keith Corzo, CEO and founder of Busright. Keith, welcome to the show. Thank you uh, so much for having me. From, from the dorm room to boardroom, I, I have to say that's pretty clever. I'm not sure who thought of that, but hats off to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, me and ChatGPT together working, working out the late night hours. <laughs> wow, very cool. So what was the prompt that you put in to, to get that result? Uh, basically just, I want a podcast where I talk to only founders from either college or earlier who have raised VC funding, uh, and just like, you know, whether it failed or not after graduating, like what happened and kind of, that's what I want to explore on the podcast. And so we brainstormed a lot. I wish I could tell you the other ones. I don't remember what they are, but they were not good. <laughs> we, we meaning you and your friend ChatGPT. Yeah. Yeah. The collective we, yeah. The founder, we, <laughs> Brilliant. Cool. Let's, let's dive in. Cool. Um, well, to start on the podcast, and this is honestly just good because for those listening, Keith and I went to school together at Northeastern. I think you were a grade above me. Um, so, or not, did we graduate the same year? Really? Wait. Um, wow. Were we, the same? were we the same? I think I was 2021. 20, oh, no, that's the year I graduated. No, we graduated at the same time. There we go. Yeah. Who knew? Oh, my gosh. I always yeah, thought you were older than me. COVID-esque graduation ceremony at Fenway, right? Yep, yep. I had like the 9 a.m. slot, which was so early. Huh. I didn't actually walk, but I was in Boston, um, which is why I probably didn't see you. But anyway, congratulations on uh, officially graduated. Yeah, you as well. That was a fun one. Yeah, our, uh, we graduated during COVID, so we didn't have a real ceremony. I sat in a seat in Fenway, and that was about it. <laughs> we also did our co our co-ops for our own ventures for the last year at Northeastern. I think you did the same thing. So not only were we not in school for the year prior, plus, uh, but we also didn't really have a formal graduation. So it was a fun uh, end, end to our journey at Northeastern. Yeah, it was. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so I was not really in school. <laughs> um, no, super cool. But I guess for those listening, Keith, why don't you give just a quick update on who you are, what year you founded Busright, uh, what school, just because I know, but most people don't. And then what uh, does Busright do? All right. How much time do I have for that? <laughs> we try and do it in 60 seconds. Perfect. My name is Keith Corso, co-founder and CEO of Busright. Founded the company, so had the idea growing up um, and pursued this as my capstone project my senior year of high school. You share a similar uh, background in that regard. And I went to admitted students day at Northeastern University and went to one event. So I drove several hours from New York and I showed up at the Husky Startup Challenge workshop where they were educating potential students that might come to the school on what resources exist for you know, current student founders, alumni founders, uh, and also just the broad in Boston, broader Boston ecosystem uh, and how that could support you know, your startup journey if you decide to go to school here. So I walked out of that class. I said, I'm going to school here, told my parents. We drove all the way back to New York. I didn't walk around the campus, didn't do anything. And that was it. So found myself at Northeastern. And uh, back to your question of like, when was the company founded? We technically incorporated in 2019, which is when we were a part of underscore VCs, you first summer accelerator. Uh, and in order to get a 
$30,000, you know, check from being a part of that accelerator. We had to incorporate the business uh, or rather change from an LLC to a C-Corp. Um, and that's shortly thereafter, we raised our pre-seed financing round, uh, landed our first customer. And that was, uh, yeah, you know, several years ago at this point. Wow. And I don't even know if I remember this, but did you raise pre-seed funding while still a student or was that all after? Yeah, so we raised our pre-seed, uh, which was a 500K round when I was a sophomore. And then we raised our $2.5 million seed when I was a junior. And then we raised our A uh, uh, several months ago in, in 2023. Damn. Okay. I don't, yeah. I, I guess that's kind of maybe why I thought you were older than me is because I was like working on Mount, not having raised any money. We were still like very scrappy, you know, figuring it all out. And I was like, oh, Keith, he's doing well. He's raising money. So I was like, this is who I want to be. <laughs> well, who, who you actually want to be is not the person raising money, but the person raising money from their customers. Exactly. That, that, that should be more of the focus, but I'm sure we'll get to that soon. Yeah, that's a really interesting nugget. We'll, we'll have to come back to that one. My next question is just what took you from that zero to one moment? Because it sounded like you raised, you know, initial 500,000, then another 2.5. Like what in there allowed you to get to that next stage of bus ride? Yeah, so I'll answer that in a roundabout way because... It looks like in hindsight, the, the dots connected perfectly, but uh, very far from it. When we raised our pre-seed round, I want to say within a few months, our whole entire market had shut down for COVID. Right. Yes. So all school buses were no longer on the road. School districts went remote. We were sitting there with $500,000 of our investors' money that we had to put to work and we had to make an impact in some way. We had so much conviction in the importance of student transportation and the revitalization of K-12 education as we know it, despite investors telling us that K-12 is going to go remote forever, that we doubled down and said, you know, we're going to continue building bus right. And we're going to align with this roadmap that we initially had, even though there's no line of sight of when a bus is going to go back on the road. But we're going to find creative ways to leverage this technology in adjacent use cases. So during COVID, a lot of these small businesses, whether it was your local coffee shop or you know oyster farm or what have you, they previously sold wholesale. They had a hundred oysters, they brought them to a restaurant, here you go. That restaurant doesn't exist anymore. So they had to go direct to consumer. The logistics of doing that, both the routing, the navigation, the tracking of it um, is, is pretty laborious. So we ended up, long story short, over uh, probably like a year or so routing, tracking and navigating over $300,000 worth of goods, whether it was coffee, donuts, oysters, you name it, to over 7,000 homes, hospitals and community centers across the Northeast. What was exciting there was like people were using bus rights technology. So when parents or customers were standing there using our bus tracking app with a bus and your coffee shows up, turns out those parents are also parents and have kids that go to, you know, those folks are also parents of kids that go to the local school district. And they might also be a principal or a superintendent that's now using bus right and learning about this technology in the event that when they go back to work, um, you know, we already had some of this brand recognition to an extent. Wow. But really what we were aiming for was how do we battle test this product and use this moment to really harden the, this experience so that when school buses go back, when kids go back to school, uh, it would be stable enough and deliver on the outcomes and the mission that we have in the first place. So sure enough, that, that did end up happening. But I'll say that 
you say from our pre-seed to our seed, like when did we know things were working in that zero to one moment? When we raised our seed round, we had a month of cash in the bank left. Wow. Almost every investment, we, we, the day we closed, we hit 100 rejections in our, in our investor CRM, not like email passes. These are full on conversations and one conversation with an investor is a pass or 10 conversations are where you get to a partner pitch. That's one pass. So multiply that by a hundred. So every day I'm in my parents' house during COVID where I grew up and I'm th- thinking to myself, how do I have the conviction that this mission still is going to be, you know, what this company can become that school buses will get back on the road. Cause right now there is no line of sight of that happening. While every investor is telling me that K-12 again is going to be remote and we have no money left. Wait, so the investor was telling you basically that they did not think schools were ever going to come back in person. Oh, well, that was the thought. Cause if you saw how many ed tech companies were built to bring K-12 education remote and online and all of these different, like, you know, local, uh, you know, organizations that were standing up their own schools, right? Whether it's, whether it was parents that instead of being like little daycare, it was, you know, they were going to educate the, the 10 high schoolers and their kids' friends. Um, and we had some of our investors that were doing that themselves or their significant others were. So you're not only up against that, you're up against the fact that your school buses aren't on the road, like at all. Right. So how can you even sell a customer in that moment? But there were enough investors that saw the future was going to come back. Um, and, uh, not only that, but at the same time, um, there was this, this idea that, look, if you can pivot and have such impact as a short amount of time, then we're going to make a bet on, on you and your company here. Um, and, I, and I hope that those investors can be proved wrong in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. That is fascinating. I mean, I was never in the ed tech space, so I didn't get that perspective. But for investors to think it was never going to go back to being in person, like how on earth do people gain this social awareness kindergarten through eighth grade? Like it's very important. Well, Hey, I mean, there's a lot of folks that thought companies would never go back, right? A lot of the ones that went remote will never go back. That's just as dramatic. Look, a lot of them have, uh, but it's, it was that same narrative that was being spun, right? There's going to be all these, you know, you know, remote places in the country where people are going to move and they're going to start their own lives. And there's school's going to look very different. Work's going to look very different. And uh, we were definitely bundled into that. So, uh, it zero to one was almost one to zero. It felt like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, it's so impressive, though, that you found a different use for your technology. First off, like, I feel like a lot of founders, including myself, would have just pivoted away and been like, let's try something in this moment that works. Um, so that's pretty cool that you stuck with yeah. it. and You're just like, we're going to test it out. Thank you. It was uh, yeah, cool in hindsight, a little, a little terrifying in the moment because you're I calling local wineries saying, hey, can you use school bus technology to deliver your wine more efficiently? Like, let me, let's jump on a demo. Let me show you how it's going to work and how your customers five hours away are going to track on an app that has a school bus, the exact ETA, et cetera, et cetera. But we got some amazing feedback. Some of those customers were like, oh, this is so much better than Amazon. And oh man, when my kids go back to school, like, I hope that our district uses this. So th- those small moments really made the world of a difference for us. Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine like the brand recognition too, which probably was, I mean, I don't want to make assumptions, but feel like an accident almost where you're like, oh my God, now people remember us. Yeah. In a way. I mean, look, we, we didn't drive you know, a ton of sales for, from that, but uh, it, it did, it did definitely help get our foot in the door because we were able to just, you know, command F on a massive list of thousands of customers that downloaded our app and see which one signed up with their school district address. And then, you know, we found a number, we reached out to them, contacted those districts and so on. 
Whoa. Okay. Another good growth hack. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. There you go. Um, all right. Well, I guess now I kind of am really intrigued on what happened next. So you raised the seed round still in college, but as you mentioned, like at Northeastern, you kind of get to work on your venture, uh, you know, more than going to school sometimes. Uh, how was Northeastern really helpful after you raised your seed? Yeah. So I'll share just like how Northeastern was helpful more broadly. Number one, in no order of importance, the, the Sherman Center, which you are very well aware of, is this engineering entrepreneurship center on campus where several student founders are selected to work on their companies full time for their co-ops. And for those that are listening that don't know what a co-op is, students at Northeastern and a number of other colleges can work full time every other semester. So you're only ever a student one semester on, then you're off for one semester and you do that until you graduate. So the Sherman Center allowed student founders to work on their companies uh, like you and I, and what other university has a program like that where they give you a you know small stipend, but it means the world, right? As, as a founder trying to, trying to get by there to have that kind of support from the university that not only are we going to financially back you in this way um, so you can pay rent and so on, but also so that you know, you can figure out, is this really the career path that you want to pursue? Um, so that like had a huge impact on, on us to be able to invest that, that kind of time while being technically a student. I'd also highlight the Entrepreneurs Club, uh, not only because, you know, I love that club and I take a lot of pride in what that club has become, but, you know, we ended up raising over a million dollars from the speakers that we brought to that club. So, you know, when you're in college and you show up to a workshop held by a club on campus or a speaker event, you know, you're always thinking like, am I going to follow up with this speaker? Like, where am I going to apply these learnings? I have a lot of homework tonight. I got a test tomorrow. Is it worth it? And every one of these events that I went to or hosted, because in the Entrepreneurs Club, we had five events every week all year long, yeah. uh, sometimes even more than that, because we had Husky Startup Challenge on, on Saturdays. And when you bring in all these speakers almost every single night, I just thought to myself, look, I have to build and nurture these relationships. These are really smart people. I want to stay connected with them. Hopefully I can support them and vice versa at some point in the future. And sure enough, as Busrate was starting to gain some legs, I would reach out to them. Hey, I'd love to get your feedback on our pitch. We're going out to raise our first round of funding or our second or even our third you know, more recently. And I mean, I just built great relationships with these folks that you know, enough of them ended up you know, putting money into the company, whether it was the founder of Kayak, the founder of Quizlet, and a number of other really incredible people. Yeah, absolutely. That's super cool. I mean, I would have never thought when I was a college student that going to those events would actually pay off and like the relationship building, but it's so true. I mean, those people really just want to help, you know, young founders and, and see where it goes. Yeah. Look, there's so many, there's so many students, right? And it makes sense that you're just thinking about classes and exams. And, you know, even if you have someone as iconic as Paul English, the founder of Kayak, that comes to speak, I would bet that even very few people end up following up with him, right? Because they don't think he's going to take a meeting with them. They don't think he'll respond to their emails. They don't think that, you know, they'll ever want to work with them, right? Imposter syndrome, whatever it is. But you'd be surprised. Like if very few people are doing it, you're already cutting through the noise and setting yourself apart. And most of the time, you know, they'll respond. They already opted into wanting to help you if you showed up. Uh, to that to that session, right? And uh, they've opted in because they've come to the university in that specific program. So why not take advantage of that uh, and and learn from them as much as you can? Absolutely, that's such an interesting point because <laughs> I was just at one of these events. I'm not a college student anymore, but 
you know, it was the young leaders and they brought in Paul and a few others and I did not follow up. So now I absolutely will. Cause I had the same belief. I'm like, well, if everyone's following up, they're going to think I'm annoying. Like they're probably not even going to read it. And also like, did they even want me to follow up? Probably not, which is the total wrong mindset I'm now realizing. Um, yeah, I should totally go follow up. <laughs> I'm so adamant about this, right? Like outside of the relationships that I've been able to build with, with these individuals, you know, putting actual dollars and cents to it, which is not always why I was following up with them, like over a million dollars, you know, was able, and our whole company has changed and our whole industry has now changed because those people bet on someone that just said hi to them after the event, asked them a follow-up question, sent them an email the next month, asked them for coffee a couple months after that and showed that they cared a lot about them, what they were talking about, um, the things that they were passionate about. And it's not just, hey, how can you help me as a student? It can oftentimes be the other way around. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, giving back to the industry. And I mean, I'm not old and I by no means a successful founder yet, but I do talk to Northeastern students, especially women founders from university that are still students and like mentor them on like, hey, here's how I fundraised uh, and give back that way. And it's honestly the bright spot of my day. Like <laughs> I'm eight hours in meetings and I get to talk to a cool young female founder. I'm all about it. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I've gone back to Northeastern and had the privilege of speaking at like Husky Startup Challenge, whatever it might be. And still like very few people follow up. Maybe I'm just not that interesting as someone like Paul or, or Andrew from Quizlet or others, but uh, people want to help. Right. And, and uh, I think you're an example of that. Absolutely. And I mean, Keith, you're an example too. You've helped me a lot along the way as well. I bounce a ton of crazy ideas off Keith and uh, I always look at you as kind of being one or two or three steps ahead of Mount's journey, which is nice because I get to ask you, like, I think, you know, right now you you closed your Series A and Mount's potentially looking at that next year or the following. And so it's going to be nice to be able to have you who already went through it to kind of give some guidance there. Let me know. We, we can uh, do a follow up recording on all the, the learnings of, of that process. But uh, until next time. Absolutely. I mean, so, okay. One thing I am curious about just from a personal perspective is, and this is just what I've been told is like, when you raise a series A, shit gets a lot more serious. It's, you know, a little more stressful as a founder for sure. I, well, I am assuming. Uh, and just like, there's a lot more eyes looking at you now because the series A, I think more officializes like, Hey, you have product market fit, you're scaling, you're trying to get big. Um, how have you kind of found the whole reaction of after raising a series A, like, how has it changed your life? Yeah. So one of the stark differences is that I don't want to generalize all investors, but a number of investors pre-series A, they're your best friend. They want to ideate with you. They want to whiteboard with you. And, you know, you feel like, I don't want to say peers at all, but you feel like you're, you're in the, the, the boat together and you, your incentives are exactly aligned. Once some level of product market fit is reached, I was shocked, and I think we have phenomenal investors around the table, but I was shocked at how many of those relationships just completely turned in a different direction of like, no, I look at you as a vessel to make me money. And the second that other investors start to see, oh, there's repeatability here, there's actually a possibility that this can become a massively impactful business, then those conversations are very different. Not only during a fundraising process with existing investors that want to follow on, um, but also, you know, after that, you know, after you take that money, it's, uh, you know, you, you look at those relationships just a, a little bit different. And I, you know, uh, maybe too, too naively thought that those investors would always, would always kind of keep that perspective, but, um, it, uh, yeah, it, it, it changed what felt like almost overnight. And, and that was, that was pretty tough to see. Cause then you start to question who else around me 
can pivot that hard when these people believed in me so early on and I thought we were friends, right? Uh, and, and clearly that that was not the, the relationship. And again, I'm, I'm not talking poorly about our investors. They're there to make money. Our customers are there to, you know, achieve a specific outcome by buying your product. Your team members are there to put, you know, food on the, on their family's table and hopefully have more of an impact as well. But one of my learnings is like, understand why everyone is, is at the table and why they're excited about this mission. It's okay if it's very narrow, just, just engage with that stakeholder group or that individual accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's such an interesting thing to keep, I guess, in the back of your mind because our investors, I think I have nothing to compare this to. So Keith, you know, jump in here if you have other opinions, but uh, our investors, I have some who invested and I've never talked to ever again, which in my opinion is very nice. Uh, and then I have the middle of the pack that, you know, they get my updates, they read them, they respond, whatever I need help with in that moment. They, if they can help, they will. And then I have probably our two main investors that right now I meet with every other week or at least once a month. And they kind of, I think to what you just mentioned are very much in the weeds and uh, want to ideate and test and do all that. So I am curious, like what is gonna happen? Uh, but I do have the same opinion as you. I'm like, I feel, you know, like we're good friends. We all are in the city. We meet up and get coffee and just whiteboard. Um, and I was hoping that would continue, but now I'm curious. <laughs> Well, you can't blame them. Like their whole business, they do well, the more value they extract from you, right? That's yeah. the business model. Yeah, when you think about it that way, it's like, no, they're not just making a friend. It's, you know, they're, they invested money and they want to get the money back. Yeah, and, and the more that you will perceive the relationship as, as them being a friend, the more likely a founder will be to cave on specific terms that can be rather onerous or the more likely you'll be to be persuaded by things that uh, will will help investors down the line, right? At the expense of, of common shareholders, et cetera. Um, and I think post Series A, you start to see where some of those you know uh, incentives start to be a little bit misaligned. And it's okay. Like not everyone has to be rowing the exact same direction. That's just unrealistic about life. But it was one of the big differences between you know realizing pre I call it product market fit is that. And you think everyone's there to like be a friend and ideate with you and whatnot. But then you start to realize, no, they're professionals at extracting value from, from Maddie and Keith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what the business is all about. And being a first-time founder, it's hard to remember all of that. So <laughs> it's good to get the reminder. Um, Keith, you know, one thing I'm really curious about going back to the college days for a minute is, and maybe this, you know, can apply to now also, but how have you found kind of the balance of being a founder? And I, I can't remember if you're a solo founder or not, but you know, whether you're not, whether or not you are a solo founder, like how does that Im impact your ability to balance one back in the day being a student, but two like personal relationships, friendships, like how has that all changed uh, as Busright has grown? Um, and you know, what do you prioritize? Yeah, it's a loaded question. Let me just tie the bow in the previous conversation. We, this company is not started or at least accelerated if we don't work with these incredible investors. So I don't want people to get the sense that, oh, never talk to a venture investor and this is like the, the wrong path. It's just understand the territory that you're walking into and, and what, what the, the pros and cons are. That's all. So, no, it's a very good way to end that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're still so, needed. So, yeah, still needed. So, so moving on. I think, you know, when you were building this in college, 
was it easier to prioritize running the business? Because that was kind of the the focus or, you know, how has that all evolved? So there's no better time to start a company than when you're in college. You will never have more time and less responsibility, right? I remember, I mean, a number of, whether it's our investors or advisors or just people would say, how do you do it? And they have several kids and they have like a mortgage and crazy bills to pay and other stressors that come with life and, and you know, growing older. And I'd say to them, no, 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 how do you do it, right? Um, you're not, even if you're not starting a company, how do you do it? And when you don't have a lot of that on your plate, take advantage of it, you know? Um, and even if you do, like, recognize the beauty in, in both of those worlds that you live in. Uh, but I'll, I'll say, like, there's absolutely no, no better time than in college because you'll never have not only more time, but you'll never have access to as many uh, resources. What do I mean by that? When you reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm a college student, I'm, I'm looking for your advice on X, like, they're so much more willing to do that than the second that you graduate. So just le- leverage that card. And I know the quote unquote payback can seem like the law, it can seem like, you know, years, years ahead, but it is worth it to invest in those discussions early on. And people are again, much more willing to do that when, when you're in school. So you, you accelerate your learning because you're able to access, you know, folks that otherwise might not talk to you otherwise. Uh, your other question around like, how does being a founder affect your personal relationships? What I would say is sometimes when I go out and like I catch up with friends and they ask like, you know, like how, how was your day or how was your week? Like as a founder, your life changes every week. I'm not exactly going to exaggerate and say every day, though sometimes it like, sometimes it can feel that way. And certainly last week was one of those weeks where almost daily it was like, wow, my life is now very different. Whether it's because my job has entirely changed. We just gave three offers out to candidates and like my life has changed because of that. We promoted two team members it changed because of that. Customers at risk of churn, churn, like that's going to alter the course of how I spend my time dramatically in the coming months. So when I talk to other people that just don't understand how volatile and the stakes that are on the field every single day, it can be, it can be difficult to just have a conversation about work, right? Absolutely. Like even if you're, and, and that's not because this is a more important or prestigious or impactful job than, than others, whether you're a banker or you're a consultant or you're a graphic designer, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the range of outcomes of what can happen on any given one of your days when you're a founder can make that conversation in the evening when you're catching up over dinner just really difficult to share with someone that doesn't understand that that part of the journey. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting because I think I'm definitely the same opinion, but for some reason, and actually I'm feeling this right now because of the holidays. Like I'll go home and my family will be like, "So how's Mount?" <laughs> or you know, like they like to say it, "How's your project going?" <laughs> uh, and I honestly have just resided to the fact like, oh, it's good. And like kind of leaving it at that, because as you just pointed out, like diving into the weeds of how Mount is actually going is such a nuanced question and answer of like, do I really want to tell them, you know, like I didn't, you know, an investor told me no today or whatever it may be. And they're not really going to understand what that means. And I don't, because then for me, it brings up all that stress that I was really trying to forget about, you know, that night. Um, And it's just really hard to talk about. (laughs) I honestly feel a little less close to like family and friends right now, simply because I just really don't like talking about what I do uh, when I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. My, 
my my recommendation is if someone asks like how's mount here's my answer all the time it's it's like how's bus right it's good bad and ugly and oh, usually terrifying because because i think that it's easy to leave it at that you'll get a chuckle and you'll be able to move on but any founder that says oh things are good either you just caught them at like the most perfect day of the entire year and like you you like struck the lottery on the one out of 365 days where every part of the business is going in the right direction um or they're just lying. So I think there is some level of humility and uh, self-awareness when founders are able to just open up and say, yeah, it's, it's good, bad, and ugly, like a lot of terrifying at the same time. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like that's, that's good because I've been, I was, guess I was looking for that answer because I do get a tinge of guilt every time I'm like, oh yeah, it's good. Because in the back of my mind, I'm like, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a lot bad going on right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. you know, it's like a stab in the gut every time. I'm like, yeah, it's great. Everything's good. <laughs> I think people appreciate that, that honesty a lot more. Oh, absolutely. Because it's so easy for a quote unquote founder to you know, say, oh, things are good, right? Like you started your business, you've raised some money, you have a team. And when you're able to show, be vulnerable in that way, it lets other people know, wow, if this person who supposedly on paper looks like they're doing well can also open up and, and talk about how things are not going well, then maybe I can too. And uh, we, we owe it to ourselves and, and the world to be honest a lot of the times. Absolutely. That is actually one thing on the fundraising front I am trying to kind of put out there into the world and hoping other founders do it as well is because there's like this notion on LinkedIn when you fundraise that one, you announce it and then two, you're, you make it appear as if it was really easy to raise that money and get those like really big name investors. Uh, and I am just the big believer of like, that is just not how it happens for anyone. Unless you are like a fifth time founder, you have the network and you have a really good track record. Um, and so, you know, I've been honest on pretty much every platform I'm on where I'm like, yeah, it took me five times to raise the first time I accepted money and I got like 500 no's. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it took like two and a half years. It was not a week time frame. Um, so, I remember those conversations with you over those two and a half years. Yeah. So <laughs> Keith and I just were like on Zooms and I'm like, Keith, you know, who should I talk to next? What is going wrong here? And you were super helpful, actually, during that time. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, awesome. Well, I don't think we have too much time left, Keith, but, uh, is there anything you want to kind of wrap up pieces of advice for our, uh, listeners about founding a company in college, anything along those lines? Hmm. Maybe not specifically founding a company in college, but I was listening to a podcast yesterday with Lex Friedman and Jeff Bezos. And he said something so basic, but it was profound there's a thousand ways to be right. What, how I interpreted that was there's so many ways to be excellent at a craft, whether it's starting a company or building a product or what have you. And the being able to not apply like how it worked for you on others. And if they don't do it the same exact way, then they're a failure is like takes skill because it takes a lot of time to listen to how they process information, how they make decisions, and then come to a conclusion on, wait, would that logically work? As opposed to, oh, they don't do it like me, so they're a failure. I'll give like the most basic uh, example that just happened. And, and uh, yeah, this, this was last Friday. My co-founder, we get on a call with a customer who's not having a good experience with Busrite. And he did not read a number of these Slack messages about, the context on this customer to which there was like essays written, right? To catch the whole team up to speed. And like five minutes before the call, 
I chat with him and I quickly realize like he doesn't, he didn't actually read any of that. And I'm so frustrated. I'm like, we have a customer that could potentially churn and you haven't taken the time to read this. But instead of having that perspective, I was like, okay, let me fill them in as much as I can in these five minutes. We get on that call and without them, you know, we might not have saved that customer because they just had a, there's a thousand ways to be right. And they have a way with words. They have a way of empathizing with customers because my co-founder was in their seat in a previous life. And I have to trust that, you know, they don't have to be like, he doesn't have to be in the weeds of every single conversation across the company at every given moment to be really, really effective. Now I do, because I don't have the experience and I'm not as, I can't think on my feet nearly as quickly as he can, but he recognizes his strengths and he you know, sees there's other ways to, to be right and be successful. So that's, a, again, a, a very basic example, but something that might otherwise have really you know, been a pet peeve for someone and, and turned them off that you know, they, they didn't do some basic reading before this really important conversation. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, I guess it goes back to let's you know, hire people that are not the same person as you, know different things than you, and uh, hopefully are smarter than you. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's the idea. I always, when I'm interviewing, if I come away from that conversation intimidated and that I learned something, almost like I was listening to a podcast or reading a book, then I'm like, I need to work with this person. That's something that I, you know, maybe didn't realize as much when I was first starting the company, um, but have come to terms with like, the smarter people are that are around me, um, the, the more successful I will become. So even if you're super selfish, hire people that are way, way smarter than you. Absolutely. And it's, you know, fun to work with them because you're going to be that much smarter a year from now. Yeah. I love that. But the reality is if you keep hiring people that are much smarter than you, you'll always be the dumbest. That's the goal. So, you don't. the idea is you don't always catch up. But yes, I, I get what you're saying. That is the goal. <laughs> awesome. Well, Keith, I'm so glad we got to catch up. I know we need to probably catch up way more. Um, but it was nice to have you on the pod, get to, you know, share your story a little and Hopefully uh, we'll catch up and, you know, on officially on the podcast in a year or two and you're at series B or C. Uh, back at you, Maddie. So thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much.